Public Radio KMXT is supported by a grant from North Pacific Fuel, serving and continuing the tradition of excellent service to the community at three locations, Marine Dock at 715 Shelikoff Street, Gas and Go at the Y, and Gas and Go at Mill Bay. It's nearly noon and time for KMXT's Midday Report. Thanks for listening to KMXT. On 100.1 FM, it's your public radio station. We're broadcasting from Kodiak, Alaska, up here on Signal Hill. It's pretty pleasant right now. It says it's 50 degrees at the airport. Sale Jones says 51, and our outside thermometer sitting in a warm spot says it's 57. Just a slight chance of rain today before 1 p.m., then a slight chance of showers after 1. Mostly cloudy skies today with a high near 55. Calm winds will turn to the southeast around 5 miles per hour this afternoon. Currently coming from the northeast, though. 30% chance of rain tonight, mainly after 4 a.m. Mostly cloudy skies tonight with a low around 48 and east wind to 5. We are looking for some serious rain starting Tuesday and especially on Wednesday. Well, invasive species are in the spotlight right after these news headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Major victory today for college athletes. The U.S. Supreme Court has unanimously ruled that the NCAA's efforts to limit compensation for student-athletes violate antitrust law. NPR's Carrie Johnson with details. The court unanimously sided with student-athletes over the governing body known as the National Collegiate Athletic Association. The NCAA limits payments for students to tuition and expenses. But Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote that violates antitrust principles. The decision opens the door for college athletes to receive laptops, paid internships, and other forms of non-cash compensation. The high court ruling is a narrow victory for the students, but it could foreshadow much bigger changes to college sports. Justice Brett Kavanaugh seemed to invite more legal challenges to the rules, and he wrote the NCAA is not above the law. Kerry Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Iran may have elected a new president, but it remains to be seen how that affects new nuclear negotiations with the West, if at all. President-elect Ibrahim Raisi, a hardliner, said today he supports talks to revive the 2015 nuclear accord that Iran forged with other world powers, including the U.S., before President Biden's predecessor pulled the U.S. out of the agreement. But White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki noted today that Iran's Ayatollah still has the last say. She also referenced the ongoing trust issues between Iran and the U.S., which wants the Islamic Republic to stop enriching uranium. Iran is not a good actor in the world on a range of issues, whether it's human rights or their engagement in the region. That continues to be the case and would be even after if we get to the point where we have a deal. But what is in the interest of the United States? What's in the interest of the United States is having that return to visibility, that return to uh, an understanding of what their capabilities are, how close they are to acquiring a nuclear weapon. 
American Airlines is canceling hundreds of flights over the next several weeks as it struggles to keep up with increasing air travel demand. We have the latest from NPR's David Shaper. American Airlines canceled more than 120 flights on Saturday and nearly 200 flights on Sunday. Going forward, the airline is cutting about 1% of all its scheduled flights into the middle of July. That amounts to about 70 flights each day. American has been one of the most aggressive airlines in restoring service to near pre-pandemic levels, but is now pulling back a bit as it deals with a shortage of pilots and other employees. In a statement, the airline also blames unprecedented weather problems in recent weeks. American says it is canceling flights ahead of time to minimize surprises for passengers at the airport. It says the cancellations are primarily in markets where there are multiple options for rebooking. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. The Dow closes up 586 points. It's NPR News. NPR News is presentada a usted en parte por la Providence Kodiak Island Centro de Asoramiento. Para una cita o más información, por favor, llama al 907-481-2400. It's Invasive Species Awareness Week this in Alaska, but this doesn't mean that invasives aren't a year-round problem. As KMXT's Dylan Samard reports for Alaska's Energy Desk, the work to fight invasive species will be the work of generations. Danielle Butts of Kodiak Soil and Water Conservation District is on the prowl. She's marching up an unmarked trailhead with a hiking pack, a warning sign about chemicals, and a bottle of bright blue pesticide. She arrives at her target, an approximately one square meter patch of hawkweed. Orange hawkweed was brought to Kodiak by gardeners. The European plant blooms vibrant orange flowers and usually grows with little prompting. But on Kodiak and in other parts of Alaska and the Pacific Northwest, the bright little flower smothers the other species, spreading aggressively and making its own special pesticide to sterilize its neighbors. Orange hawkweed will, if we let this patch here grow and consume the area, it will outcompete the native vegetation you will lose your favorite native flowers. Pollinators will lose their native plants that they pollinate. She sprays the invading vegetation with pesticide, dyeing the area blue. Using the pesticide requires intensive training. It's a caustic solution, but it's applied sparingly and to a severe problem. The city of Kodiak is inundated with orange hawkweed. Now it occasionally breaks out into the surrounding wilds, carried by the boots of hikers or the treads of ATVs. With orange hawkweed, I know people within the Kodiak road system feel discouraged because the city of Kodiak and just around like populated areas, residential areas, even in the borough, um, there's orange hawkweed everywhere. But what we're trying to do right now is focus on these like satellite sites that are showing up outside of this main central area. Concerned citizens warn Kodiak Soil and Water Conservation District when they find patches. With help from the Conservation District, butts can hit several sites a day in fair weather. But there is always more hawkweed. Even on the way back to her truck, butts finds and sprays another small patch. Hawkweed isn't the only invasive species that is causing problems on Kodiak. Just down the road at the Buskin Lake, an invasive population of crayfish gorge their insatiable appetites on salmon eggs. Zebra mussels ravage waterways all over the country, and down south in Washington state, Japanese giant hornets terrorize local honeybee populations and their keepers. Invasive species are now a part of modern life, and they likely will be for generations to come. While the outlook may seem bleak, Alaska Department of Fish and Game Invasive Species Program Manager Tammy Davis says that not all is lost. 
She compares the problem to coronavirus. There are always pathogens moving through human populations that can have drastic and dire impacts on humans, cause massive death, as we have seen with coronavirus. And yet we continue to be optimistic that through prevention and response, through you know, medicine, we're able to sustain human populations. I guess that's where my optimism is, is I want to believe that most people want to do the right thing. When asked whether it is a matter of inevitability that these species break out of control despite our best efforts, she retains her positive outlook. I really want to believe that through sharing that information, we're able to at least keep invasive species in a position where we may need to be constantly responding to them, They haven't totally decimated what we think of as our native environment. The methods of preventing accidental transplant of invasive species are myriad, but typically they consist of ensuring that boots and recreational boats are cleaned when off the trail or are taken out of the water. Those looking to learn more can find more information on the websites of the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, the Department of Natural Resources, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and Soil and Water Conservation Districts. Those groups have resources ranging from guides to identifying and reporting invasive species, to heat maps of invasive species spread, to tactics and tools for you to take the fight straight to the invader. For Alaska's Energy Desk, I'm Dylan Simard. Canada will not open its border for tourism before next month. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau told reporters on Friday that Canada can't allow even vaccinated travelers to visit until more Canadians are able to get the shot. Because even a fully vaccinated individual uh, can pass on uh, COVID-19 to someone who is not vaccinated. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control say vaccinated people are less likely to have asymptomatic infection or to transmit COVID to others, though some risk of transmission remains. Canada extended its border closure until July 21st. The border is open for essential travel, such as those who need to cross into Canada for a job or school. Alaskan drivers returning home from the lower 48 have been allowed to pass with proof of residency, but their movements within the country are restricted. In recent years, the chum salmon runs on the Yukon River have been low. This year, it's too early to tell how the run will end up turning out, but with commercial fishing becoming a less viable venture, KYUK's Olivia Eberts reports one fishing enterprise is hoping to find stability by turning to veggies. The goal is to keep business operating and workers employed. So Quickpack Fisheries in Emonic is diversifying its business by building greenhouses right next to its fish processing plant. Traditionally, Quickpack is the only fish buyer in the lower Yukon and one of the region's main employers during the summer. During good chum and coho salmon runs, Quickpack can employ between 100 and 300 workers on any given day. A number of those employees are teenagers from villages all over the lower Yukon. It's great seeing these kids because their self-esteem and well-being, they just glow because they have work. Jack Schulteis manages Quickpack Fisheries. 
they have their own money and not just, you know, menial work, but to where they can use the imagination and their intellect. But last summer, low salmon runs meant QuickPack couldn't hire as many people. That meant fewer people receiving paychecks. Paychecks used to pay bills and buy the supplies needed to practice subsistence. So to keep up local employment and to widen local food access following years of weak salmon runs, Schulteis began thinking about other options for QuickPack. Food security is what it comes down to. And having fresh vegetables and stuff that you could actually afford to buy and they would be good quality. So Schulteis, who lives in Anchorage but has been coming up to Emonix seasonally for 50 years, asked community members what kind of vegetables they wanted. Potatoes, carrots, lettuce, tomatoes, broccoli, peas. He ordered greenhouses. They arrived this week. He's already hired workers to set them up. Schulteis says he knows it will be a short growing season this year, but he has a plan in place and he'll learn along the way. I wouldn't call this season an experiment. I would call it gaining experience. And if the chum run is high enough to open a commercial fishery this summer, the two operations will sustain each other. Schulteis says he'll use fish waste to enrich the soil in his greenhouses. Schulteis also hopes that the program can partner with local grocery stores to sell its produce upriver. In Bethel, I'm Olivia Ebert. State workers are preparing for the first government shutdown in Alaska history. Legislators and Governor Mike Dunleavy placed the blame on each other for the impasse, and the path still isn't clear for how legislators will reach agreement to prevent the layoffs of nearly 15,000 Alaska state workers from happening on July 1st. To try to bring a little clarity to what's happening, Alaska News Nightly host Casey Grove talked to Alaska Public Media and KTOO's Andrew Kitchenman. The House passed the budget for the next year on Tuesday. The Senate passed it on Wednesday. But there's a provision known as the effective date clause. It failed in the House. And Governor Dunleavy announced Thursday that that means the government, except for some essential services, must shut down on July 1st. Now, there's a deep legal disagreement over whether this needed to happen. The House majority points to a long history of governor spending for government services when effective date clauses fail, based on advice from state lawyers. They say this is all unnecessary and is a choice by Dunleavy. The Department of Law says Dunleavy's announcement is well-grounded in the state constitution and that this precedent really doesn't apply. It's really distinct from what's happening this year. What do the House members who voted against it say they want? Minority leader Kathy Tilton from Palmer says the House Republican Minority Caucus felt their voices weren't heard enough in how the budget was built. And she says they want agreement now on what the components of a long-term plan for the state budget will be. How precise the details are that they would want to see in that agreement aren't really clear at this point. Here's how one caucus member, Anchorage Republican James Kaufman, described it. For me, what, what this would look like would be the, the framework, the master framework of, of what we're doing, what components have already been put in place, and then what possible pieces need to be in place that are not yet there. So we'll need to know more about what an agreement on components for a long-term plan would look like precisely. But the members of this caucus have advocated for a larger permanent fund dividend. 
On the majority side, the leaders say protecting permanent fund earnings for the future is essential. Well, where does the governor stand on this? Is he on one side or the other? There's no doubt that he wants a larger dividend. On the one hand, he has said the entire legislature is responsible for trying to solve this problem. But he told radio talk show host Michael Dukes that those who crafted the budget tried to strong arm those who opposed it. Here's Dunleavy. Nobody should be strong arming the other side. They've got to sit down and work together and craft something that's going to work in which they want to bring people together as opposed to twist arms and force them to vote. And that's what happened the other day. That arm twisting didn't work. This is the result. On the PFD and other policy matters, the House majority tends to be the closest of the four caucuses to the governor. Well, as we know, thousands of state workers want to know if their jobs are at risk. What are you hearing from state leaders? Everyone I've spoken to in the Capitol is taking this seriously. As an example, here's Dillingham Independent Representative Bryce Edgman. But here we are, um, completely divided. There's uncertainty. We're about to head into another special session. And the governor uh, has drawn a very bright line in the sand. And at this point, the road ahead to me seems to be very uh, difficult and uncertain. And perhaps for the first time in Alaska's history, we may actually have a government shutdown when it's totally unnecessary. One single vote could uh, stop that dead in its tracks. It's not clear what services would be affected. The Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation announced that all of its workers, including those who manage the fund, would be laid off. Past administrations have said the fishing industry would be shut down without state employees working. Another consequence is that up to $194 million in accrued leave could have to be paid out, which would cause its own budget problem. I'm also looking into how it would affect state funding for schools, among other issues. So, you know, certainly I'll be continuing to report on this. That was Alaska Public Media and KTOO's Andrew Kitchenman reporting. Andrew, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Casey. And that next special session is scheduled for Wednesday. Alaska has a new state forester. He comes by way of California, where he retired as one of the state's top resource management officials. Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick has this report. Alaska's new state forester, Helga Eng, grew up in Oslo, Norway, which is nearly the same latitude as Anchorage. You know, I've always considered Alaska kind of home in the sense that uh, I was born and raised in a similar climate. He just finished a 21-year career in California, where despite making his home in the foothills of the Sierra Mountains, the dry heat spells were hard to escape. That wall of heat of 105 degrees is not something you really get used to, so... Uh... Coming up here, it's, uh, it's a welcome change, and it's like coming home for me. Ang spent more than 20 years working for CAL FIRE, the Golden State's Forestry Management and Wilds and Firefighting Agency. He was in charge of resource management, which researched different timber practices on state lands. Now, as Alaska state forester, he oversees more than 260 employees and is in charge of regulating logging on state and private land. His office is attached to the Alaska Department of Natural Resources and is charged with preparing timber sales on state lands to supply local industry. We are continuing to work actively, as my predecessor did, to um, reinvigorate a uh, timber industry in the southeast. Clear-cut logging of old-growth forests is controversial, and there has been increased scrutiny of projects on Prince of Wales Island and other parts of southeast. Ang says it's his job to make sure all voices are heard before making critical land use decisions. There are 
several points of view on forest management and, and timber harvesting. And uh, I, I do think it's important that uh, all of those views are represented and, and all the voices are heard. So um, rest assured there will be uh, ample opportunity for public input into all of the state's harvest decisions. As in California, which has been devastated by wildfires, his job here will also include wildland fire protection. In a statement, DNR Commissioner Corey Feige says, we are fortunate to have Helga Eng bring his experience north to Alaska. Eng replaces outgoing state forester Chris Mache, who served for 21 years before retiring in February. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. KMXT Local News is underwritten in part by GCI. GCI has adjusted store hours across the state to keep our customers and employees as safe as possible during this time. The most up-to-date store hours are available on GCI.com. This is Alaska Fish Radio. I'm Lainey Welch. Removing minerals from big mines might mean salmon can't find their way home. More after this. The Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute works to raise the value of our seafood harvest for the benefit of all Alaskans. Learn more at alaskaseafood.org. Is it a coincidence that one of the world's largest mineral deposits is near the largest sockeye salmon spawning grounds at Bristol Bay? And if a massive mine like Pebble removed those deep deposits, could it disrupt salmon's ability to find their way home? A study underway aims to find out. You know, it's not even been 10 years since we've discovered that salmon are using Earth's magnetic field as a way to know where they are. You know, what is the magnetic environment that salmon need to thrive and what might humans be doing to that magnetic environment that might keep them from thriving. Dr. Nathan Putman is a senior scientist at LGL Ecological Research Associates and a top expert on animals' use of magnetic fields in migratory navigation. With this particular project, what we're aiming to do is think about might removing magnetic minerals alter the magnetic landscape experienced by salmon. Putman's earlier studies on pinks show that salmon have multi-purpose navigational tools. A compass by itself only gives you a direction. The Earth's magnetic field obviously gives you that direction, but it also, for salmon, gives you a sense of where you are. In some ways, you might think of it as sort of part compass, part GPS. A salmon's early magnetic rearing environment is critical, Putman says, and it's easy to manipulate in the lab. If you have something so simple as a nearby iron pipe to their rearing environment that distorts the magnetic field, they don't appear capable of using the magnetic field to make navigation decisions. Putman is testing models for over 300,000 mines spanning 20 years to gauge impacts on fluctuating geomagnetic fields. The project is funded by Aaron Kallenberg of Wild Alaskan Company and a third-generation fisherman at Bristol Bay. Find links at alaskafishradio.com. Fish Radio is also brought to you by OBI Seafoods. In Kodiak, I'm Lainey Welch. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages the weather, and community announcements. Hello, this is the Alaska Department of Fish and Game in Kodiak with Kodiak Commercial Salmon Fishery Advisory Announcement Number 8, date issued 10 a.m. on June 21st. 
There will be a 57-hour commercial salmon fishing period from noon Tuesday, June 22nd until 9 p.m. Thursday, June 24th in the following areas. In the Cape Alatac, Humpy Deadman, Alatac Bay, Mosier Bay, and Olga Bay sections of the Alatac District. The following areas will be extended until further notice. The Outer Iacoolic section of the Southwest Kodiak District and the Inner and Outer Upper Station sections of the Alatac District. Waters will remain open to the stream terminus of Olga Creek, stream number 257304. As previously announced, there will be a 33-hour commercial salmon fishing period from noon Monday, June 21st until 9 p.m. Tuesday, June 22nd in the following areas. In the northwest of Fognac, Pauls Bay, Paranosa Bay sections of the Fognac District, the Eastside Kodiak District, and the Big River and Outer Kukak Bay sections of the Mainland District. Closed waters will be reduced from noon Monday, June 21st until 9 p.m. Tuesday, June 22nd in the following areas. At Caflia Creek, stream number 262301 to the stream terminus. And at Saltry Creek, stream number 259415 to the stream terminus. The following areas remain open to commercial salmon fishing until further notice. The Fowl Bay Special Harvest Area and the Waterfall Bay Special Harvest Area. Closed waters are currently reduced until further notice in the following locations in Fowl Bay to the stream terminus at Hidden Lake Creek, stream number 251406. And in Waterfall Bay to the stream terminus of Little Waterfall Creek, stream number 251822. And to the stream terminus of Big Waterfall Creek, stream number 251821. Commercial fishermen are reminded that in the Kodiak area, including the mainland district, until further notice, king salmon 28 inches or greater in length may not be retained by Persang gear in the commercial fishery and must be returned to the water unharmed. Other closed waters are shown in the Kodiak area salmon statistical chart and detailed in commercial salmon fishing regulations. And statistical charts, harvest strategies, and commercial salmon fishing regulations are available at the Kodiak Fishing Game Office. And, of course, most recent salmon fishery information may be obtained by calling the department's 24-hour recorder phone at 486-4559. Thank you very much. Good luck fishing. This is the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Welcome to your island messenger for Monday. It is the 21st day of June, the year 2021. Sun rose today at 5.08. It will set again at 11.15. That will give us 18 hours and 7 minutes of glorious daylight. A loss of 2 seconds compared to yesterday, our longest day. We just had a high tide here on the east side. It happened at 12.09 p.m. and it was a 6.2 foot tide. Over on the west side, you will have a high tide at 12.33 this afternoon. That will be an 11.8 foot tide in Zacker Bay. Here on the east side, our next low tide will be at 5.27 p.m. and be 1.8 feet. And our high tide for nearly midnight will be at 11.53 p.m. and be 9.5 feet. Over on the west side, your next low tide will be at 6.21 p.m. and be 2.3 feet. Your midnight high tide will be at 12.22 a.m. and be 14.7 feet. 52 degrees, just a slight chance of rain before 1 p.m. today, and then a slight chance of showers after that. Partly sunny skies, they're saying this afternoon, with a high near 55. Calm winds will turn to the southeast this afternoon. For tonight, a 30% chance of rain, mainly after 4 a.m. Mostly cloudy skies tonight, the low around 48. A low of 48 tonight. For tomorrow, rain, mainly after 7 a.m., a high near 54. East wind to 10, and chance of precipitation 90%. And that rain is expected to continue overnight on Tuesday and get heavy on Wednesday. 
We're looking for quite a bit of rain and wind on Wednesday as east winds are expected to blow up to 30 miles per hour on that day. Mariners, if you're going out on the water, for Chiniac Bay, we're looking at variable less than 10 right now, seas to 3 feet. For tomorrow, east 10 will increase to 15 knots. Tomorrow afternoon, seas to 4 feet. Up in Marmot Bay, variable less than 10, becoming east 10 in the afternoon tonight. Seas 3 feet. <clears throat> for tomorrow, east wind to 20 knots, seas to 3 feet, building to 6 feet tomorrow afternoon in Marmot Bay. There will be a Board of Education regular meeting tonight beginning at 6.30 p.m. in the District Services Conference Room. That's F-140 of the old high school wing. The meeting will also be streamed through Blue Jeans and, of course, broadcast live here on KMXT on 100.1 FM. Meeting login information and other information can be obtained on the Kodiak Island Borough School District's website. And for more information, you can contact Bianca Clark at 486-7566. Paving operations that are part of the Rosanoff Drive resurface project are taking place between Carolyn Street and Marine Way in the westbound lane. New traffic patterns will be in effect during the night between 6 p.m. and 7 p.m. So be on the lookout for flaggers and drive safely. The Senior Citizens Kodiak will have their Board of Directors meeting on Friday, June 25th. That's happening at 11 a.m. in the Senior Center's multi-purpose room. This meeting is open to the public. For more information, call the Senior Center at 486-6181. And of course, be aware that they are flushing the mains right now. The city's flushing all its water mains. You may get discolored water, and you want to let it run with the aerator out if you want to use that for cleaning or drinking. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT two times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. and during the Midday Report at 12.20. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org.